Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Philip. I don't like it when you start off that way. <laughs> You're in trouble. Go to your room. Go to your room. Um, you recently did a podcast with another co-host. Yeah, I did. And it was most excellent. Should I be worried about my role here? Um, No, no, because I think we could have many podcast hosts. But Khalees was very good. She asked a lot of really good questions. But you're the same way. And... If I had to choose, what? I would definitely choose you every time. Rather, rather, rather. Well, I'm glad to be back today, and I am glad to be talking with our guests today. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Rob, where are you? I'm in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, that's pretty fun. <laughs> Colorado Springs is definitely fun. I was there for the yeah. Multiple Pathways Conference. Were you at that? I was not. Oh, I was man. not at that conference. No, home, hometown last May. Yeah, and I, Colorado Springs is full of uh, mental health opportunities. So, <laughs> inside and know. outside, right? Correct. Yeah. Rob, you're on the Recovery Matters podcast. Is there a matter about recovery that you'd like to talk about, straight up? Well, you know, for me, I, you know, recovery does matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what matters to me is that people start bringing um, their troubles and their traumas to light um, without the addition of judgment and shame from others so that healing can start to take place. Mm -hmm. um, that's where my heart's at, mm -hmm. you know, was... because coming from it myself, you know, I know what that painful journey looks and feels like and it's very lonely but the reality is a lot of people are are on the same path the same journey so there's that old slogan of we're only as sick as our secrets and i was talking with a mom yesterday whose son has addiction and and uh, our son's in recovery one of our kids and the whole motivation was to keep him talking to keep mm -hmm. talking so how did you learn to start talking about your trauma? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, you know, it's crazy. I had, when it came to my addiction and my recovery, you know, my buddy calls it a foxhole prayer, you know, um, but it was bigger than a foxhole prayer. It was a moment of sheer clarity and repentance and appreciation for God's grace and mercy for my life after everything that I had already been through because, you know, I jumped headfirst out of a third-story window with the intention of killing myself, and instead I broke myself to pieces. And even though I survived that, you know, I was deemed not to walk again in the event that I did. I'd be fully medicated. I would never work out. I wouldn't play sports. I wouldn't work a full-time job. There was nothing that was being set before me. I, in a way, walked back to my old way of living, you know, I had a lot of um, unresolved trauma and there was feelings that I didn't know how to deal with or didn't know how to address. So I continued the path of self-medication and um, I eventually 
got behind the wheel of my girlfriend's car, crashed the car, read, you know, ran from the scene of the crime, hid under a house. And I just had this moment with God, right? I had this moment with God where I saw like this picture. Um, I saw this movie and I'm, and I'm trashed. Like I'm, I drank a lot, but <laughs> it was like this moment of clarity. It was this, the sober moment where I was given this, this short lived movie of the last four years on what my life was up to that point. And I was taking it for granted. Right. Um, in that moment, it was like the desire to drink and use was removed from me. And from that point on, my mission in this life was to help people navigate through their childhood experiences, their traumas, their troubles, their unspoken words. And how can we get to a place where you don't feel the need to self-medicate and, and loving yourself. Right. Um, and that was, that's kind of been like my heart and mission. And so, you know, dealing with my traumas and the reality is this, you know, I've been sober for 10 years now, you know, uh, January 8th was 10 years for me and the, the work doesn't stop. You know what I'm saying? Like I have a wife now that brings up stuff from my childhood. I have kids now that brings up stuff from my childhood and it's learning to look at those things, um, and not allowing my past hurts to impact my marriage and my relationships and my non-profit and working with others. Right. Um, I'm, I'm in a constant place of mindfulness, um, and not letting my feelings dictate my actions, you know? And I think a lot of us like right before the show, you know, Phil had mentioned, like I was doing what I was doing because I didn't want to feel. Mm -hmm. And that was my reality. That was my whole life. I didn't want to think those thoughts. I didn't want to deal with those demons. You know, I, I wasn't, I started using so with all the trauma as a kid and then getting into drugs and alcohol at such a young age, like I didn't, I didn't develop emotionally well. And so when I got sober at 34 years old, I still had like this 14 year old mindset in some areas of my life because I had never grown and developed. Right. And so, okay, now I got to go address that kid. You know what I'm saying? I got to work with that guy while, you know, going out into the workforce, working with others, uh, you know, getting married, having children, you know what I'm saying? And so yeah. there was, so let, yeah. Let me ask you a question. So what was your childhood like that you weren't able to develop well? Um, you know, at a very early age, it was a lot of rejection, neglect, and, you know, isolation, abandonment. So at a very early age. So, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what did oh, you, yeah. rejection, isolation, abandonment. Neglect. Neglect. So what kind, what kind, what was the situation like where all those things happened? Well, um, when I was, you know, I had just turned six years old. I had just made it through kindergarten and I came home and um, I had this diploma Is that it? had my dad's last name on it. And my parents sat me down to tell me that he wasn't my real dad. Um, right. What? Yes. Um, and that I was no longer going to carry their last name. So, you know, now you're like, well, I don't belong to you. My sister's not my full sister. And then where's my real dad, man? You were, know? Were you the oldest? 
I was. I was the firstborn. So why you did know? why did now after all these years? Why do you think they did it that way, or what was the well, reasoning? Um, I believe that my parents tried to do the right thing. So my dad, and I'll call him my dad. So I I eventually developed a relationship with my biological father. I'll refer to him as biological dad. Mm-hmm. Um, love him just as much. And but my dad you know, met my mom when I was six months old and right away she got pregnant. Well, her, his parents encouraged them to get married because it was the right thing to do. So, you know, you had this little fling coming together, getting married, two young people in all their brokenness trying to raise a kid. And um, my grandmother didn't approve of me having their last name. Oh, wow. And, and my my father was influenced by that, you know, but only because of some of the dysfunction that came out of his family, which is something that I, you know, drew a cl- conclusion to much later down the road. Yeah. Right. And yeah. So, but um, but understanding that now helped me with forgiveness and healing. Right. Is mm-hmm. understanding that my parents were young and broken and lost and trying to figure it out and doing the best that they could. And you know what I'm saying? So, okay. um, that's just who they were and I'm okay with that. And they did what they knew, you know, at the time. And so, you so, know, at six years old, go ahead. Now I was going to say, so at six years old, your first identity is kind of stripped away. A hundred percent. My Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and as I got older, everything that I started getting engaged with, um, was getting taken away from me. Um, I was also molested at a very young age. Um, one of the neighbor kids had molested me um, in my closet, and his dad and my dad were buddies. They were friends. And um, because of the shame of it all, the confusion of it all, I couldn't run to my dad and be like, hey, dad, you know, my dad, he was a tough dude. You know, he's that old school, you know, yeah, he was a Marine. He was a boxer. You know, he was, dude, he was, to me, he was like the ultimate alpha. Yeah. My dad was unstoppable. And, um, you know, that was the image that he portrayed through his brokenness. But, um, you know, there's something, there's certain things that I couldn't take to my, my father. And that was one of them. And shortly after that, you know, I started getting, uh, in, you know, I started sneaking into, um, his pornography stash, you know, when they have VHS, right? So these kids had it way too easy, right? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I grew up in a generation where you had to go find it, put it back exactly where it was, how it was, oh, rewind sure. it. Yeah. I would do whatever you need to do to make sure dad doesn't find out, right? I don't get to pull up an iPhone. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, I found that as I was snooping through their room. And so then I started getting engaged in that. Um, so, you know, love and intimacy and connection was a straight twist for me and then that leads into my like one of my very first sexual experiences where my very first girlfriend who i loved at 14 years old right because you know exactly what love 14 and um um her dad and mom were out of town so the dad sent his best friend to the house to keep an eye on us um and instead bought us alcohol 
got us intoxicated. And that was the first time I got intoxicated and um, took advantage of her right in front of me. So two things happened that night. I went down this deeper rabbit hole of, you know, intimacy issues. <laughs> but also I was now introduced to numbing my feelings. Fair. And I liked numbing my feelings. Numbing my feelings felt really good. Yeah. So with all the chaos of going at home and the dysfunction, the fighting, the arguing, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, well, now I can start drinking myself and numbing that pain. Uh, well, I just need to take a breath because um, I always think as parents and and... Uh, we've raised five children. I had a daughter from my first marriage, and Sandy and I have four together. And they're all away. You know, the last one is in school. And we always have long car rides and wonder how badly we screwed our kids up. And, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they it. tell us over a nice family dinner, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when... That, that turkey was extra salty tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hear stories like we hear on this podcast all the time, you know, it puts things into perspective. We didn't intentionally hurt anyone, neglect anyone, abandon anyone. We loved our kids as best we could. And Absolutely. I, I'm comfortable with that. I don't know if you're always comfortable with that. I, I aimed for perfection and I felt short. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't, like, I, I'm not angry with my parents. You know, I, I, I truly in my heart believe that they, did what they knew how, you know, and that's been part of my ceiling and in my recovery, you know, and even now as a parent, as a sober parent, like, you know, I raised my children, but I also don't want to overcompensate for the things that happened to me yeah. growing yeah. up. Right. Like, you know, now you're just spoiling them and they're turning kind of like, uh, okay, <laughs> oh, no. you're doing too much. Right. Um, and so you're just trying to navigate you know, I wasn't taught a lot of things. I had to learn a lot of things. Yeah, on my recent podcast that Sandy uh, mentioned, um, I believe I was really well cared for, yeah. but not well loved. And yeah. because I didn't really express that all all the time, but I love what you, your healing process and where you yeah. are to very um, succinctly and um, confidently say I love my parents, and yeah. because I got to that place too, even yeah. though, even though, right? Because you start to realize when you're raising kids and going through that, and you know you have to own what you need to own, and Correct. then forgive and say right. they did the best they could. I don't think there's any malintent with that, with the way no. they treated us, but that stuff happened. Well, and, and I take ownership of my choices, even right. if my choices came out of, you know, behaviors and patterns and my trauma, like I still look like I take ownership of that, you know, and the moment all that really changed for me is after my suicide attempt, you know, I was taken home to my mom's house and um, I remember uh, her coming home from work one day and, and I just started weeping, man. So my mom and I never had that relationship. She was 17 years old when she had me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my my mom had her trauma. And, you know, um, I sat there on the couch and talking to her and she started opening up about her life. 
And I, in that moment, I realized like, you're just as tormented as me, mom. It felt like you get the grace and the love and the forgiveness, right? Like, but then she started expanding on, you know, my dad, um, same stuff, like, and same thing. I'm like, man, like, you know, I love him for attempting to do what he could and to put food on the table and a roof over my head and food in my belly. You know, he did, he did the best, you know, 10 years after my suicide attempt, my dad calls me up and he says, uh, you know, son, I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you talk to me. All I ever did was break you down and I never wanted you to be better than me. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, um, to me, that was his way of saying, son, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. That was, if you know my dad, that's my dad. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the only thing I could say in that moment, because you're my father and I love you, dad. Mm-hmm. Two days later, I get a phone call. Okay. Uncle grandpa's dead. My dad knew he was on his way out and he wanted to make, he wanted to make good. Right. Um, I got but at least, at least over that 10 year span after I jumped out of the window, my dad got to see my love for him, regardless what, I don't care what right. happened. Right. Right. Shortly after that, I reach out to my biological father. He responds with, Hey, I don't know how to tell you this, but I only have six months to live. Stage four bladder cancer. What are the chances? Right. Mm-hmm. So I spend the next six months grinding it out and just connecting with that man. And I go to take a trip out to Washington where he's at and his girlfriend and her daughter pick me up and they say, Mike's waiting for you to get here so he can move on to the next life. Oh, I mean, right. And I'm grateful for this opportunity. I mean, that's heavy. Um, so I get there and he's like, I mean, he's withered away. He's broken to pieces. Like he, he can't eat. He's highly medicated. He comes out of the room and I look at him. And he's just, he's not there. But then for a minute, he connects eyes with me. Hey, buddy, how are you? Uh-huh. Gives me a big old hug. And I, like, I feel his shoulder blade, his spine, like his, he's withering. I'm like, hey, dad, I love you. I just want you to know that I love you. And he just breaks. And he goes back to his room. I don't get to see him for another day. I have to get back home. I got to be with my family. Um... I go into the room to say bye to him and I'm holding his hand. I'm rubbing his knuckles. I'm like, hey, dad, you know, I got to go home now. I got to be with my family. You're in God's hands now. Just know that I love you. And in his just, he was, he wasn't there. He says, no, not yet. He musters up the energy to say that. And, you know, I just, here comes the wheel works, right? <laughs> and, and she needed to know that whether you were there for me or whether you were not there for me, I don't care because this is the only moment we have. And you need to know that you're loved and that you're forgiven. And that's the only thing that matters. Two days later, I get the phone call. Mm-hmm. Hey, your dad's, your dad's gone. Um, and I had the opportunity to extend forgiveness to these two men because I think that a lot of my addiction came from confusion, betrayal, rejection, bitterness, right? Um, I couldn't identify those things at the time. And I, you know, the drugs and the alcohol helped medicate that for me. But when I 
started addressing that in my life, the freedom that came with it. And, um, you know, I know that a lot of the people that I work with have suffered severe mom and dad trauma, right? And though we don't want to blame and shame and guilt them and gaslight them, right? It's still inside of people mm-hmm. and they have to navigate through those feelings, right? So how'd you get to that place of being able to pour that out on those two men? My faith is huge. My faith is central to everything. Um, Early on, right before I quit drinking, I read this book called The Christ-Centered Life. And, you know, no matter what perspective you look at them, you can appreciate the story that's being told there. Um, You know, he's my savior. Some people just think it's an amazing story, the greatest story ever told, right? Uh Um, The forgiveness that took place on that cross, the sacrifice, the love, the empathy, the compassion, the willingness to lose his life um, for the ones that he loved. It was the ultimate story of suffering for me. And leading up to that moment, like to really unpack that whole story without this turning into a sermon, you, you really start to appreciate what that brought to the table. And there's nothing in this life that will ever compare to what took place there. It was a selfless act. And that was the beginning of the future for me and wanting to demonstrate that same kind of healing, love, trust, sacrifice, empathy, patience, forgiveness for others in my life, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where it really took off. So you've mentioned this jumping out of a third story window, trying to kill yourself and breaking yourself into pieces. Can you describe that? how you got there and what that evening was like? That was the ultimate, that was when the transition began, right? So ultimately what happened is that I got so far in a pit in my addiction and my self-shame and self-pity and lack of self-worth. I was dating an escort. um, And, you know, (laughs) in our crazy agreement, she was going to stop doing what she was doing in order for us to have a future together. And so what happened was she ended up going on a trip with a client and it was her last trip. It was like a big payout kind of thing. Right. And he was her last hoorah of escorting. And, um, you know, she's calling me, telling me about basically everything short of he beat me and raped me. I mean, those were just, and she was sending me pictures of being black and blue and all this kind of stuff. And, um, so when she came back, she picked me up from a friend's house and naturally, because I didn't know how to handle my feelings, it's like, Hey, let's go to the liquor store. Let's pick up a bottle. Right. Cause this is intense. This is a lot like, and, uh, we went back to her place, started getting into this conversation and it was just so, I mean, it was, and it started leading into her wanting to be more intimate. And it was just an overload for me because, you know, it was just a lot for me to handle. And I go downstairs to like rest it. I'm going to go lay down. I'm going to go lay down with this one. And I wake up to a banging at the door and, um, you know, I'm 
I'm in a state of confusion. Well, she walks down the stairs and I asked her what happened. And she says, I called the cops and said that you raped me and that you tried to kill me. And in that moment, uh, the confusion, the fear, the betrayal, the brokenness. And I was in this place in life where I was living on people's couches. I was an addict. I was an alcoholic. Um, I wasn't working. I was selling drugs. Like, I didn't have my license, didn't have a job. Like, my life had come to this moment where I was being falsely accused of something I didn't do. Um, and I just looked at her and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I just can't live this life this way. And I ran headfirst out of a third-story loft window, supermaned it through a closed window, broke through the window, and on my way down, my foot clipped an awning and changed my fall. And it left me with a severed spine, two broken arms, and uh, a collapsed lung. Uh, I woke up in the hospital after a 10-hour surgery, and I was handcuffed for rape and attempted murder. Uh, that... So that's the, yeah. And and suicide was something I struggled with my, my whole life. You know, it, it was a battle. I mean, at a very young age, me and my buddy Johnny, we used to cut our arms. Yeah. We were cutters, man. Um, so suicide, when I was in high school, I was giving my mom pictures of a guy putting a gun to his head. You know, FTW, mm-hmm. you know what that means? I'm not going to get, like, um, <laughs> but that's where I was. I struggled with that. Mm-hmm. Um, alcoholism and drug abuse and the amount of my engagement in it was my slow suicide. Yeah. There was no hope for a future. Right. It was slow suicide. That It had one purpose, and it was one day I wasn't going to wake up. I got to. I have to admit, though, I, a lot of stories I've never heard anybody taking the full run like through a closed window. That's pretty spectacular, Rob. You, have you know, a, you have a you know, player so for the player for the dramatic. Hmm? I'm a committed guy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm a hundred percent committed to my recovery, and that night I was committed uh, to like yes, you the are. Other side of eternity, man. <laughs> so I've noticed that you've taken a lot of training since you've got into recovery. Uh, you're a CCAR yeah. recovery coach, professional, and a health and fitness coach. So yeah. talk to me about the coach, Rob. What the, what oh, the yeah. what's that mean to you, and and how does that fit in your lifestyle today? Well, you know. Coaching allows me to uh, engage with people and meet them where they're at, right? Um, they have a need, and I can meet that need. So in fitness, it's physical fitness, right? Uh, in addiction recovery, it's addiction recovery. You know, in ministry, it's like, you know, spiritual, you know, connection, right? And so I've become a, a coach in all those realms. And actually, recovery coaching fell on my lap, Um what happened was a local psychotherapist in the area knew my story, knew who I was. He, he knew me from the gym and he was like, we're creating this new program. And I think that you would be a perfect fit for it because you've lived a life that none of us therapists have. <laughs> we can read about it, but you lived it out, man, you know, and you can connect with an audience that we just cannot connect with and, um, uh, agree, right. Agree. <laughs> and, um, so he got me certified, but then what happened was it just opened up more doors and more doors and, you know, eventually, you know, and then I started becoming, and then I created Recovery Rebel Softball where we want to honor everybody's path to recovery. We don't want to single people out. We want to meet people where they're at. We want to create that unity. We want to take the shame, you know, and the judgment out of what like 
struggling mental health and recovery looks like. Right. And, you know, now that's something that we're using as a modality to pour into the community. And then, so Rod Rushing of Embark knew of my softball stuff. And so he pulled me in. He's like, hey, we got this pilot program and these recovery homes. And, you know, he gave me an opportunity to, you know, start working with uh, people. And with that, you know, Rod offers for myself and anyone associated with my nonprofit organization, you know, um, complimentary uh, recovery coach training, CCAR or choice, right? And so, you know, it's like, okay, mental health training, spirituality training, you know, suicide awareness training, you know, HIV training. And it's like one training after another. Um, <laughs> so you just start becoming fully equipped. Hey. And um, yeah. And, and that's what coaching really has become is like pulling out as much useful information as I can um, and, and taking my education and my experiences and my passion for people and my love for people and trying to infiltrate those walls that they have in their life to bring them down to start um, to encourage healing, right? Well, you know, I was talking yesterday, I mentioned conversation. I had a rich conversation with somebody yesterday. And one of the things that is a real struggle still with the stigma associated with addiction recovery is that the these are all injuries to our brains. And so people don't see that. They just see that the symptom looks like immoral behaviors. So yeah. I wonder with all that training and all that experience, what have you learned about the brain and addiction recovery that um... well so you know it was before the training i think that i had a good concept of my own brain mm -hmm. so i wanted to heal i had this deep desire to heal but not only i didn't want to be sober i wanted to heal mm -hmm. right i didn't just want to remove the substance and the alcohol i wanted to heal and so i started unpacking my own stuff and what i realized was that my brain at a very young age started developing in a certain manner. Um, and now you have these neural pathways, mm -hmm. right, that have been created. And then at some point you start to interfere all that with drugs and alcohol and you're interfering with proper development. And, you know, and I started unpacking myself because, you know, I, I still struggle with ADHD. It's still an issue for me. It's something that I had way before I started drinking and using. And, um, and it, you know, it's learning how to work with my own brain and understanding my own brain so that I can be functional and effective, uh, in my life mm -hmm. and in helping others as well. So, you know, the training complements everything that I tried to unpack with myself. Because it has to start with me. One of the challenges I see, and I don't know if you will agree with this as, you know, who you are in, in the realm that you're in and that we're in. I'm seeing a lot of people that get sober and then they get in this honeymoon stage of recovery and they're just gung-ho about being recovery coaches. And they haven't addressed their own traumas and got their own healing and their own therapy. And then you put them out into this realm where they're trying to be helpful, but now they're being triggered all the time and it leads to their downfall it leads to relapse and re you know and i'm seeing a lot of that um colorado springs is you know pretty heavy 
um, with all the addiction and, and the mental health stuff, I, I want to say that suicide here amongst the youth is number one, number top five in the nation overall. Um, you know, I think we're number 50 in mental health alone. Like we're struggling in this state big time. And so with that, you're, you're trying to bring up all these coaches, but a lot of them aren't, um, mentally, uh, mature enough to start embracing that connection yet because they still have work to be done in themselves Absolutely. and that's not a knock on them it's a reality because yeah. i know as far as uh my journey in recovery being exposed to some of the stuff i'm exposed to i have to be mindful of what the possibilities of something reminding me of something of my childhood you know something that i was exposed to mm-hmm. and um how am i going to process that and deal with that Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's constant work. You're reprogramming your brain. Goes back to your original question, right? It's like you're trying to remove um, or reprogram the pathways that have been created while developing new, healthier ones. Where for me, physical fitness is a huge component of that because physical fitness creates new uh, and healthy neural pathways in the brain. Right. And so you know, it's a complex unit. Right. And so, um, you know, you're always paying, like, I'm always just paying attention to those things. And I believe that when I start getting very challenged by these things is when I'm exhausted, you know, um, I've been exposed to it for long periods of time without taking care of myself, my own self care. I think that self care is important. It's good to have healthy habits and eating well and staying hydrated and working out and climbing mm-hmm. mountains like Phil, you know, <laughs> like you got to do those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having a deeper spiritual connection, like whatever your faith or spirituality is, you need to believe in something that there is so is. much greater than you that has given you purpose in this life and that truly loves you. And if you spend enough time with that, you will see the fruit of that. Um, but, but a lot of times that doesn't happen. Um, we have to put in the work on ourselves in order to help other people. Uh-huh. Wow. So I, I love what you said about the, the coaching. And I think one of the legs of the Recovery Coach Academy, as we've come to address it, is discovering and managing your own stuff in order to coach well, right? And that that's a huge, huge area. I've recently developed the Advanced Academy for Recovery Coaches, which really dives internally. It helps in your own personal transformation. We believe transformed people transform people, right? So you are hundred percent correct. Hundred percent. So if we're not if we're not that far along on our own transformation, then I think our we can still help others, but we're at greater risk. Because I right. think you know we're out of our lane a little bit, so um, it's a both and. But it's again the willingness to look at yourself, and what I see in you is willingness to dive deep internally, and that's the key to recovery. I think. Um, Absolutely. As we wrap up, what is it? Anything else you'd like us to know? Yeah, you know, um, I'm just really excited for you know everything that. I'm working on with Rod Rushing here in mm-hmm. Bark and the Me programs too. he's creating. And, um, you know, I have another guy that I'm going to send to you who's a very close friend of mine. He's a 
the number one light heavyweight MMA fighter here in um, Colorado Springs. And, you know, he's a C-car recovery coach and he's one of my closest brothers. Um, him and I are actually working on a podcast together. Um, you know, we're people of faith, but here's the challenge. There's a certain language that the church doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to talk about, doesn't want to express, which <laughs> eats me at the core because I think that opposes everything that we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Amen. <laughs> I struggle with the institutionalized Western Christian church. Mm-hmm. And Colorado Springs is full of them. Um, business first kind of mindset. And so they don't want to alter that. Not everyone's like that. There's some good ones. Um, with that being said, and there's also forms of recovery that say, hey, we're the only way and we're going to reject the fact that you had a God moment, you were healed and delivered because you didn't follow our ways and our program, right? We want to bring that all together and we want to share our stories and we want to talk about the hard topics. We want to talk about the traumas, the addiction, the sexual abuse, the molestation, like all of it that led to a lot of our addictions um, and the suicide attempts, like my buddy, you know, same thing. And so, you know, him and I, Adam and I are working on, well, how do we bring our faith without being religious, right? And how do we bring uh, recovery and um, being able to unpack a lot of the things that led to our self-medication, you know? And so, you know, that's a project that we're working on right now. And you know, between that and my nonprofit of Rises Lions and the Recovery Rebels, you know, there's a lot of work to be done um, because there's souls to be saved out there. There's a lot of people hurting and there's a lot of people holding it in, you know. We've, we've wrestled with a lot of those things that you've mentioned, so we'll be cheering you on and hope to stay connected with hearing how, how that's going. Yeah, absolutely. If you're ever looking for guests on your podcast, we're also open to that. Absolutely. Oh, but I, Absolutely. I do want to talk to you just one point about what you're talking about unpacking. In uh-huh. the Ad- Advanced Academy, I don't know if the goal was to unpack, but I approach subjects like um, emotional awareness, self-awareness, right. emotional intelligence. Um, yeah. So people about being curious about yourself. It's um, curiosity, really. It's really. Curiosity. So so, you know, um, I just I try to coach. I try to approach it with a coach mentality. Like, right. Uh, you might have a weakness if you're out there on the soccer field or on the softball field, but I might point it out, like, and say, "What is it, Rob? You need to work on, you know, in your softball game. What is it you?" You're a great hitter right-handed. How how are you left-handed? You know, all those things. So I, I can am, hit I can hit left-handed though. I'm sure you, I'm sure you can. I I often, I often use the analogy of being like Steve Kerr and trying to coach Stephen Curry. How do you make Stephen Curry better? You know? Well, you know, <laughs> but you know, I, I I will openly admit that one of my challenges is not getting into this rescuer complex that I have that I need to save the world (laughs) because it removes boundaries and it removes balance, right? Uh I have to have realistic expectations and a foundation in order to be able to help people 
and keep a sane mind and raise a family, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Um, because I can easily get into that rescuer complex mindset of like everyone needs to be helped and I can provide right. that help. I've uh, I've I've boiled but, down my recovery coaching career like I've probably been coaching for what thirty years, and it comes down to two points at this stage: the quest for the question. What's the question I can ask? And the second one is the le- less I say, the better. So, so it almost becomes like a a game for me. How little can I say? What's the right question to just have you talking, to have the person I'm coaching talking? But I am way more on the side of knowing for years that I couldn't save everybody, so I didn't even want to play yeah. in that space at all. And I think that I really had to reach this uh, mat- maturity of over 50 to have a lot of those things in place to to not feel like I could solve everybody's problem if they would just listen Correct. to me. Well, I think, you know, I believe that part of my addiction was a desire for connection. And so yeah. I want to connect with people. The place that I've got now is I don't take it personal when that connection comes up short or somebody relapses or they don't want to hear what I said. Like I've come to that place where, Hey, that's okay. Because if you really go back to the beginning of my story of rejection, if I'm taking that personal, that's my rejection, my little kid rejection issues. And so now that we've addressed the rejection, like I'm not being rejected, rejected, they're 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 dealing with their rejection or you know whatever blocks yeah. that they put up right, right? so right. accepting that and you're gonna help who you're gonna help um and people too they have a lot of times they have to want it they have to have a desire for it um and i think one of the things i was guilty on very early on is like oh well, you have a problem let me help you solve it uh-huh. right right like, yeah that's just a that's that's a waste of energy mm-hmm. yeah. right that's a and you're setting yourself up for that rejection that, you know, you've spent your whole life trying to work with and around and get rid of. And yeah. Other people's answers never solved my problems. I had to solve no. them for myself. Correct. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I dig so deep personally um, in order to get where I need to be. You know, I, I learned more about the human body after I broke it to pieces and had to build it back up than I ever did through the 30 certifications and education and kinesiology that was ever provided me on a piece of paper and a a textbook, right? Mm -hmm. It was really trying to connect with myself and like, oh, this is what works. This is why it works. And then, you know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. and now it's actually made me a better coach because whatever injury you're dealing with, you know, I could probably address mm-hmm. and help you get stronger. And and that's how I want to be with people mentally, emotionally, spiritually, right? And well, naturally, physically, because I'm a personal trainer, but but that's kind of what I'm trying to like, but also getting them to see it in themselves and want to ask questions and and mm-hmm. um and want so that they can address it because I think when it becomes your own idea and you have that aha moment, <laughs> that's when you can hit the ground running. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you're trying to get people to have aha moments, right? Yeah. And that happens through connection, <laughs> right? I truly believe that happens through a sincere, authentic love for the person that sits across from you because they're not just 
a number or a job. They are a soul. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rob. You're Rob, welcome. you have a fan. I'm your fan. No, you number two. Oh, I'm. <laughs> you, you have two fans, so. Thank, thank you, Ben. You have All a spectacular right. day. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us.